Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. So hi, Morgan. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Um, if you're tuning in, we're going to be talking about the experience of a former Scientologist who has had um, a drug injury. Uh, it's it's going to be a very interesting story because Morgan grew up in the Church of Scientology and then left, kind of rejected a lot of the ideologies and ended up doing the unthinkable, which was getting on psychiatric medication, um, you know, much to the dismay of... Uh, you know, I, I think your parents actually, and 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 uh, people that you knew from the church, you ended up having a drug injury, and then found yourself in a difficult position reconsidering um, how an organization that maybe you know you, you're not agreeing with a lot of the things that they're doing, but that they actually had some reasonable cautionary advice about psychiatric care. So I'm really excited to talk to you about these things, and uh, maybe just. Uh, Kick us off at the beginning. You know what? What was it? What was it like growing up as a Scientologist? You know what? What did you hear about uh, psychiatry? What did you learn about it uh, from from your family and community? Yeah. So uh, you know, kind of, we talked over the phone, Yosef. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it was something just kind of instilled in me at a young age. Psychiatry, you know, was kind of the ultimate sin. Um. There was never really a, a whole lot of like, you know, logic behind it. it. It just kind of, it was what it was. And so, um, you know, when I got older and I kind of started, I was influenced by, you know, I think the, the mainstream view of Scientology, I started questioning a lot and just kind of eventually, you know, rejected you know, all beliefs, even if there was maybe some validity to some. And what was it just kind of going into that? Um, like, tell us about that experience of like, I guess, you know, becoming more aware of the broader world and I guess the views on Scientology. How, what was that like for you, you know, learning about those things and then saying, you know, I really don't agree with this or that about uh, Scientology? So uh, I can remember uh, being a teenager and hearing on the radio, um, folks talking about, you know, uncovering some kind of top secret information in the higher level courses of Scientology. And I remember pulling over, I was so stunned, I called my mom and asked her, you know, is this true? And she said, of course not. But um, you know, I had heard enough from, you know, friends and being in, uh, I was in public schools and um, neighborhood kids, uh, to know that there is maybe some merit to it. I know, right. Um, because I, I feel like it's just mostly people just like kind of teasing psych Scientologists or, you know, making right. fun of them on TV. And you probably saw that, right? Yeah. Right. No, totally. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I'm an elder millennial. And so I, I grew up yeah. with South Park and I can remember seeing, you know, an episode where it, where it poked fun at, Scientology and there was, you know, being a Scientologist and kind of and having friends and family in Scientology, there was uh gosh, I forget his name, but it was the uh the actor that did the voiceover for Chef and in, in South Park. 
he had this huge conflict with, you know, the producers and writers of the show. And so, um, so, so anyway, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I didn't know that about chef was chef a Scientologist or yeah. Or, or? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. All right. Yeah. 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 Lots of, lots of celebrity Scientologists. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. And is that, is that, I mean, what do you remember like growing up? I mean, was it like, did you go to just like a normal kind of public school? I mean, was it, you know, when people found that out about you and your family, was it, you know, did people tease you? Did they kind of make comments? Like, what was that whole thing like? Yeah. You know, sometimes I can remember explaining to a friend in middle school, kind of the beliefs reincarnation is kind of, you know, is woven into the theology and he was Christian and, and talked, you know, so he, he made fun of that aspect. Um, but I, I would say for the most part, people were fairly polite. Like they would be with, you know, mo- usually the decency's kind of gone out the window um, these last few years with religion and politics. But, um, but at least then, you know, we, I, so in Florida, it's not, it's not the Bible belt entirely, but it's, it's definitely influenced by the Bible Belt. Um, so there's probably, culturally. I guess, maybe just more of an acceptance of religion and, hey, you know, believe what you want to believe. Is is that maybe more of an attitude in Florida, let people just have their beliefs and respect them? Well, no, I, I was going to say there's a lot of Christians, a lot of, okay. kind of you know, yeah. um, holy rollers. and um, But I, I don't really remember them. You know, we had friends that were Christians. Like, you know, one of my best friends in high school was, Christian and um, they never at least made fun of it to my face, but it was for sure stigmatizing. I could feel the stigma of, of being, you know, a Scientologist. I don't think I completely, you know, understood why until I got older, but I kind of always felt the stigma. And so. What was this like for your, I guess, for your parents when you, when you're just like, Hey, I think I, you know, I think I don't believe this anymore and I want to leave. Like what happened like in your family? Well, so, so my, my parents, by the time I was a teenager, they had, they weren't active in the church. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like a huge deal, you know, um, but my, but they for sure still subscribed to a lot of the philosophies and um, there's kind of just, you know, the normal mother-daughter dynamic. I'm thinking with my mom, this kind of strained with some disagreements, but we always kind of just agreed to disagree. Um, and I just kind of chalked it up to them being just really uneducated and, you know, ignorant. Sure. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. And so... Walk us forward to the, I guess, the unthinkable decision to sort of take psychiatric medication. How did that, how did that come about? What was going on in your life? How did your family respond to it? Well, so I, I had moved across the country to Idaho. Um, and I, I lived very much, you know, my own life. Um, I got on an SSRI when I was 26 years old. Um, it was after we had kind of this family tragedy. Um, and, and I, I was, I was severely depressed and I had, you know, some other things going on and I was, um, I was actually put on an antidepressant. I don't think I realized I was taking an antidepressant because I had been admitted to, um, a facility 
um, and they were giving me an antidepressant and um, obviously at some point like they were a, like, like a psychiatric one, like they were worried you had like a no, suicide risk or was it well, like a hospital? Maybe. Yeah. Um, maybe. So it, it was a detox center. I was drinking heavily. Okay. Um, and yeah. so I went to a detox center, uh, a local detox center. And that was one of the things, one of the many pills I'm sure that, you know, week that I was there that they gave me, that was the only one I left and continued to take. Um, okay. So you go to this detox, you get put on an antidepressant. doesn't sound like anyone really kind of sits you down and tells you about it, right? No, no. In fact, the, the, you know, the, I, I'm pretty sure it's just like, um, you look, it's funded by the government. And so there, there wasn't like, it wasn't like a referral given by like my PCP or, you know, any kind of, practitioner prescriber I had been seeing regularly. I eventually was put in touch with one afterwards, but, um, but yeah, so I, I don't, I wasn't in my right mind. And I, so I'm not really sure at that time I would have been able to, you know, even give consent for, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a chaotic time, you know, coming off alcohol, all these things going on. Like, so, so when did you, when did it sort of dawn on you that you're like, oh, I guess I'm on an antidepressant. When, when did that, when did you realize that? You know, that's hard to say. It was so many years ago and it was such a, um, it was a really, you know, a hazy time for me, but I'm, I'm certain they told me at some point, maybe in the detox center, um, but I didn't really become fully aware of it. I'm pretty certain until afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I actually had gone into like a three week mania, um, on, it was fluoxetine. And so it was like a three week mania and, um, but you know, I thought it was great. (laughs) I thought, you know, this is, this is the pill I needed, you know? So. Yeah. So it made you, so it sounds like, um, um, yeah, you were kind of in this 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 manic state. I mean, was it was it a positive state, or like, or did you do? Because I know a lot of people like they'll feel good when they're when they're manic and they don't want to come down, but afterwards they're like, "Oh my god, I did all this uncharacteristic stuff." You know, I was disinhibited. You know, I may I may have damaged my reputation with some people because of the things that I said, or you know, I may have um, you know blown money recklessly. Did you? Was it kind of only like a, was it a nice feeling or was there also these sort of the the consequences of mania as well? So, you know, that might've been, um, a a hyperbole, hyperbole with the saying it was mania. I, I mostly just, um, I didn't sleep and I just kind of felt good. I didn't do kind of the stereotypical like spending, you know, being promiscuous, that kind of stuff. So you can have subtle ones like that though, where it's just like you're yeah. elevated, but, but you don't have to sleep. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, walk us forward to when you became, you know, I guess because you told me you developed protracted withdrawal from the antidepressants. What, what happened between when you got started on it then at, at this, at this kind of rehab detox type setting and when you developed the protracted withdrawal, like tell us about that period. I got off, I, I I'm, it's been about 16 months now since I got off of um, my SSRI. So you're and on I, it for several years, it sounds like. Nine years, yeah. Nine years, About okay. nine years, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I just kind of thought, you know, I had, I had, I've had these thoughts like so many others before. Why am I still taking this? You know, is I didn't really know, like, uh, 
I was unsure even then there's something intuitively like um, unsure about like the chemical imbalance theory or like doctors telling me like some people just need this for life. And yeah, what, what did um, they tell you? Like, cause, cause some people will come and say, you know, my doctor didn't really say anything. They just saw I was on it and they continued it. Other people sometimes get that spiel about the chemical imbalance or, you know, it's just genetic. And like, do you, do you kind of remember just like little snippets of what, what you heard? Yeah. So for the longest, my OBGYN was prescribing it. Um, and I think, you know, he kind of just said, you know, one, it's really safe for your pregnancies, which I'm, I'm unsure about now when I, when I, in retrospect, right. When I you don't follow Adam Murado. Yeah. He's, yeah, when I, he, yeah. When I look back on mm-hmm. my son um, having withdrawals after he was born, but, oh, God. Um, but he kind of just was, uh, you know, he, kind of just told me if you're doing good why get off of it and I kind of just accepted that um I was passive about it and then um I I eventually did find a PCP primary care physician um to see regularly because I was you know in my 30s thinking I should I don't know like grown-ups you know it's a part of adulting you get a doctor you see regularly um Mm -hmm. and the last thing he told me while I was in acute withdrawal was um, that I had relapsed and I told them this is nothing like my, this is nothing like any depression I've ever experienced or anxiety I've ever experienced prior to getting on the medication or even on the medication. And he was told this me, the, was this like 18 months ago or had you like kind of gone in and out of times where you tried to come off before you, you became protracted? Yeah. So, you know, again, like when I brought it up to doctors, like my OBGYN, he, he'd say, if you're doing good, stay on it. Um, there was a time with, with, uh, my primary care physician, which has since been fired. Um, he, you know, he was switching me around and, um, and he kind of had the same sentiment, you know, if you're doing, doing good on this, you know, stay on. And there was a time where I wasn't doing good and I was on it. And so you know, the, the answer was to switch, you know, to a different SSRI. And that's like a really common story, sort of what, what you described. Yeah. So, so, t- so 18 months ago, you decide to come off. What, what, what prompted that? Like, why, why then, you know, after, after nine years of, I guess, hearing this same, Hey, it's good enough. Just keep on going. It's fine. No big deal. What was it at that point that, that led to you being like, no, I'm coming off. So it was about 16 months ago. And, um, it was, I, so there's kind of like a back, if we were to like a backstory with like, not really a backstory, but with Scientology kind of, I, I went to the other end of like, um, you know, like a political and cultural spectrum where I became a total leftist. And I, when COVID happened and there's this huge political divide, I, I wanted to leave the country and I thought being on a medication was going to be a hindrance. And, um, and so that would, and there was also, again, there's thoughts just kind of like, you know, I feel like I'm in a stable place. Um, you know, since I had, you know, from the time I was on and on and put on an antidepressant, like, you know, 10 years yeah. ago now, um, I've since then, uh, gotten married and had kids and I was a, a teacher and, um, I just thought I was in a really stable place and sure. I 
thought it was no big deal getting off. And I potentially wanted to leave the country with my family. And I thought being on a medication would, it would be tough finding a new doctor somewhere. Um, you know, what would, what would immigration think of me being on an antidepressant or, you know, what would they question because of that? So it's, I mean, it's a hugely complicating thing. You know, I, you know, people, people's meds get lost when they're traveling. Sometimes people have had their benzodiazepines stolen out of their luggage before. Uh, so, I mean, what you're describing is such a shared experience of, of people who, are, who, who need to take medications for their mental health condition. So, I mean, that totally makes sense. Um, and so was it Prozac that you tapered from 16 months ago or was it on a different one at that point? Yeah. So it, fluoxetine was, I had been on for about seven years and then my doctor switched me briefly to Lexapro and mm -hmm. we ended up on Sertraline. Uh, and so that was ultimately what I came off of about 16 months ago. And and what was the taper like? What was the information you received from your doctor when you said, oh, I'm going to come off? Like, how did they tell you to do it? Yeah, um, very typical. Uh, half it and then half it again the next week. Um, and I think that was it. He said to half it one week and half it uh, again the next week. Okay, and so to two, be done a two, with A two-week taper for, for nine years of medication yeah. use. Okay. Yeah. So, right, I, I so I did. Yeah. I did stretch that out. I kind of intuitively knew I was like, I, I'd been on this for so long. And so I thought, I'm just going to stretch it out to like a month or two. And that's what I did. So tell us what happened then, because, you know, protracted withdrawal has an interesting clinical course. You know, sometimes people get hit like, bam, you know, it's, it's bad during the taper. But I also hear a lot of stories about people that come off and it's a little uncomfortable for maybe the first couple of weeks. And then gradually over the course of two to three months, the real injury kind of emerges and it really hits his yeah. peak. What, what was it like? Like how did your protracted withdrawal syndrome sort of emerge after this one year, this, this one month detox, just describe those kind of the details of what you were feeling and, you know, kind of going up to, I guess maybe when it hit its peak. Yeah. So when I halved my dose of sertraline from 50 to 25 milligrams, I was hit with a, I had a slew of physical health problems. I developed vertigo, tinnitus, which I still have to this day. Um, I would get my, you know, I would go black when I would stand up, uh, muscle twitches everywhere. And I begged my, my, my doctor for a referral to a neurologist because everything I had researched pointed to some kind of neuro, uh, neurological problem. Um, he didn't, he never wrote that referral, but he did send me to an ENT. Um, and I had an ECG done because I had, mm -hmm. um, tachycardia and, um, neither of us had connected me tapering my antidepressant. And so I was left with this kind of mysterious health problem. It did kind of seem to resolve, um, you know, after a month or two after I completely stopped my antidepressant. I don't think so acute hit me about two or three months after that. When I look back, um, I definitely had signs. Um, there was, you know, in, in that two to three months before acute hit, um, there were days I just didn't sleep at all. And I thought that's strange, you know, who doesn't sleep for 24 hours. Um, 
and, you know, irritability, rage attacks, um, Mm -hmm. and, and akathisia that I didn't recognize as akathisia. I'd have, you know, times I'd lay down and I can remember, you know, just literally wanting to jump out of my body. I, and I thought that's weird. What a strange sensation, but it, but it would go away. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I kind of thought I had whatever withdrawals there may be, which I didn't really know, you know, of to the extent and that withdrawals, you know, when injuries occur, like how they've happened to me now. Um, I, I just thought I had them lit because I was fine until about two or three months out and all hell broke loose. You talk to us about like, um, well, I'm going to introduce this kind of section because I think it's kind of interesting this, because that, that, that's what, exactly what happens on the benzos. And mainly that's who I see in my private practice in a protracted benzodiazepine injury. But I also see more and more antidepressant people now. It's really interesting that, you know, they get rapid detox. They feel bad. You know, they come off, they feel bad, but it's, it's tolerable. Just like you said, you know, things come and go. It's bad. It's not really quite right. But then after about two to three months, the bottom falls out. And then any kind of dam that was holding back the symptoms breaks. Um, and I almost think about it like, because it, it took me a long way to kind of even have like a model on how to think about it. And, and what I think is going on is, I, I guess you come off the drug, your brain knows something is bad, but it's, it's compensating for it. It, I almost think about it as like an engine in a car and it's just redlining and it can survive for about two months, like revving as hard as humanly possible to keep things in balance. But after about a couple of months, that system fails and it can no longer compensate for the fact that you've pulled out a chemical that was really an integral part of your brain, you know, for, for nearly 10 years. And then at that point is when the damage really kind of like evolves and it becomes very serious. So, I mean, that, that's been my take on it, but it, to, talk to us, like, what was it like when, when the dam broke and, uh, you know, two months later, like how did the symptoms hit you at that point? Yeah. So, um, my, I mean, the most distressing symptoms were akathisia and, and insomnia, chronic acute insomnia. Um, that, and maybe those are symptoms of akathisia. I I know a lot of people experience those together, not everyone, but, um, my sleep just kind of deteriorated to the point where I, I was, I won't say I wasn't sleeping at all. Um, because I'll have people in the comments saying you had to have slept, (laughs) um, a little bit, but But the um, sleep is so poor quality because I've, I've worked with people, you know, they've flown out to Utah before people with these injuries and, you know, I see them every day in their hotel and, um, you know, they always say this, they go, you know, I'm not sleeping. And I talk to the parents of the person who's injured and, and they go, yeah, she sleeps. But when they watch them, they're like twitching, you know, right. it's, it's, it, there's something really strange about the quality of sleep with protracted withdrawal injuries. Right. It's not a deep sleep. It's not re- restorative. The people who, who apparently look like they're sleeping never feel like they're actually getting any sleep. I mean, there's something really strange about what, what's happening at night with these things. And right. so that doesn't surprise me that you're just like, I didn't sleep right. um, because I always hear that. Yeah, that's and I, I think that's pretty spot on uh, for my experience as well. Um, I, you know, it 
I want to say it was gradual, but it really was just kind of like signs here and there. And then it really did just kind of happen. You know, I was just in acute all of a sudden and I, um, my sleep had already been deteriorating. I committed to this camping trip with a neighbor. And, um, and so my husband and I, and my two kids went on this camping trip and I was just, um, hit with the, you know, I want to say the worst akathisia, but all akathisia seems to be, you know, the worst, but I, um, everyone was asleep and I paced the campgrounds. I couldn't stop pacing. I had, um, you know, I've heard people describe some of the inner terror, terror as like um, a bad LSD trip. I've never done LSD, but um, I would imagine that's what it was like. Just kind of one, when your thoughts are going a million miles per hour, they're looping and violent. Um, you know, I, I tried putting on some downloaded cartoons on my, uh, that I, cartoons that I had downloaded on my son's tablet to, to calm myself down. And I would my mind would make those violent. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I, I, that night I did, I didn't sleep at all. I just paced, um, and then, uh, got, got my husband to, you know, I was going to say to agree, but you know, he's so supportive, you know, I just told him what was going on and, and we got out of there as soon as we could. Um, we headed back to town and I went to the urgent care cause I, I had no clue, you know, what was going on with me. When did you realize that you you had an antidepressant in related injury walk me through the story from like having those symptoms to discovering what had happened to you yeah this was just kind of like a game of me like deducing what i was ingesting or like had in my body so the the first thing i i wasn't taking any medications at that time i thought it was maybe my marina iud um and then there was just at some point and i think it was that day I, I, I just knew that it had to have, you know, many Google searches. I would, I love to look through my browser history uh, from that day and uh, those first few weeks. But, um, but I think I realized it that day, this has to, this has to do with the antidepressant and having stopped it. Um, and so that was at, from that point I found, you know, I, I think the first thing I found was info on Dr. Uh, Stuart Shipko, which at one point was, um, you know, fairly well known in the wider withdrawal community. And, um, and I hadn't quite settled, you know, I still had this cognitive dissonance. Um, doctors will know how to fix this. And so he was a doctor, right? And um, a doctor of psychiatry and he, uh, supposedly specializes in antidepressant withdrawal. So I called him and surprisingly he, um, he called me back and we talked and he said, yeah, you, you have akathisia. Um, and he did advise me to get on a benzodiazepine, um, and to try to reinstate my antidepressant. Mm -hmm. Uh, how'd that go? Um, well, so I wasn't able to get a benzodiazepine at an urgent healthcare mm -hmm. center. Um, I did a day or two later go to, um, like a, a mental health crisis center in town with mm -hmm. prescribers. They also did not prescribe benzodiazepines there. I did re reinstate my, um, this, uh, sertraline uh -huh. at the full dose, uh, per his recommendation, it exacerbated symptoms, um, and 
so I eventually, and this was kind of strategically done, but also done out of desperation. I admitted myself into a psychiatric hospital. Um, and that's like the psychiatrist there, um, took me off of the sertraline, um, and put me on Buspar and Clonazepam. Okay. Um, uh, so the Buspar and the Clonazepam did that, um, I mean, did it really, did it do anything? Did, did it stabilize you at all or, you know, minorly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's hard to say. I, I think the, the first time, cause I had never, I mean, I think I had maybe taken a benzo many years ago, um, for like at the detox center, like for a very short stint of time, but it was never something I took regularly. And so, um, so I would say probably, you know, like the first couple of days I noticed there, there was a little relief with, uh, with taking clonazepam, but, um, but after that, it did seem to kind of fade. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me either. So I guess, um, yeah, I mean, once the, once the injury has really evolved, I mean, we call it protracted withdrawal, but it's not, really withdrawal phenomena because you with normal withdrawal once you reinstate the drug or a similar drug the symptoms go away you know once with this it's it's a neurotoxicity um and so there can be like a a little bit of relief but i don't know if it's ever really relief because we've intercepted the underlying kind of abnormality and corrected it in some way or whether it's just relief because we've superimposed a new drug effect on top of you know, uncomfortable symptoms, you know, cause yeah, if you give someone a benzodiazepine who's having a lot of anxiety from a dysfunctional brain that's been hurt, it's, it's going to feel better, but quickly thereafter you develop tolerance and then the drug doesn't really do much, um, may even make things worse. Um, yeah. so I know, so, I mean, you mentioned before that you kind of had this whiplash and you'd become, I guess, very liberal, very trusting of doctors, maybe very pro, you know, like, psychiatry, you know, mental health stigma, all of these things. I'm, I'm on board with it. Talk to, talk to me a little bit about this, I guess, how this experience made you, I don't know. Yeah. Question your faith in the medical establishment and and things like that. And then, you know, made you eventually start asking more questions about Scientology and, and, uh, their views around psychiatry. Yeah. So, you know, I have a, um, like a cruel joke the universe has played on me having me you know born into this faith so anti-psychiatry and um then I came into my own and and realized that you know maybe this was a cult and um and viewed them as incredibly just uneducated I will say I do want to throw out there I my you know personal experience with Scientologists is they're they all very good people. Um, there's just, you know, there's a lot of corruption with uh, the leadership as there is in, in many religions, but, um, but yeah, so I kind of, you know, in rejecting that faith, um, you know, there was no nuance to it for me. There was no, um, well, this makes sense to me. This doesn't, it was, um, well, this is wrong. So everything they're saying is wrong. And I rejected it. And for sure went to the polar, polar opposite, um, 
with, uh, you know, I, my, my parents did not value education. So I, I valued ed- education. It was really important to me. Um, I was a grad student at Johns Hopkins. I, um, I, I was a teacher, uh, and I, I, you know, I want to say I drank the Kool-Aid with a lot of kind of what happened during COVID with that political divide. I just, um, yeah, you know, the whole movement to not stigmatize mental health. I absolutely, you know, bought into that. And, um, and I, I loathe, you know, the anti-vaxxers and, um, these folks that in my head just clearly were uneducated. You know, that's really what I chalked it up to, to be. They just were not, you know, they, they didn't have the like intellectual capacity to like wrap their heads around, like how this works. Um, and truthfully, you know, here I was thinking the chemical imbalance theory was, you know, just fact. Um, and so there's been a lot of kind of, um, you know, reconciling the, the, what to make of the world now, you know, um, and um, it's amazing how this kind of experience can do that to someone, especially someone that was on, you know, uh, that had completely, I mean, opposite views just uh, 16 m- months ago, you know, just completely opposite views. You know, and I'll say you're not alone because the, I mean, yeah, if you're at Johns Hopkins or if you're at any of these kind of elite academic institutions, um, they, they're very aligned with, with popular opinion, you know, and, you know, p- popular political opinion is, you know, oftentimes it's dictated by who has a lot of money and influence. And, you know, when it comes to things like pharmaceuticals, you have very powerful organizations whose survival really determines depends on a favorable impression of their products. And so they'll, you know, they, you know, on the one hand, they talk a lot about, you know, we do this for the patients, you know, that's our number one priority, but it's, it's kind of like an oxymoron, you know, you cannot have the patient's best interests at heart when you always have an opposing, an, you know, an opposing commercial objective, you know, cause right. the patient's best interest is always going to be to use it in the most discriminating way possible to minimize the risk. And the commercial objective is always going to be how can we create the most favorable opinion of these products and make it the easiest for the most people to use them, you know? So it's, you you get pulled in both directions and most of the messaging that that we hear about psychiatric drugs or even vaccines, I think, um, you know, they're more, they're, they're more coming from the commercial lens of these, these companies than they are from, you know, the, the clinical folks within the companies who, who are probably, you know, who are much more like, let's be discerning on how to use this, but they always lose out in a company that's beholden to shareholders and profits for survival. Right. Um, and a lot of, and it's really hard and, and gosh, yeah, people are really surprised when something like this happens to them and they say, how could regulators let this happen? How could the media let this happen? How could doctors let this happen? How come, you know, we, we, we had such a one-sided, perspective of, of these things kind of add to us. It, it feels, right. it can feel like a betrayal. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, um, you know, the, those folks that I was poking fun of, um, just a few years ago, like I, 
for their con- conspiracy theories are, are the ones that I align with mostly now, you know? Um, but, you know, I spent some time um, angry at my doctor. Um, I know I sent, I sent him some um, strong worded, you know, messages um, in the beginning of all of this. But, you know, I really come to conclude, I don't, I don't think most doctors realize what's going on. Um, and, and they're not the ones to blame, you know, it, and it really does sound so uh, kind of, it sounds ridiculous, right? But it's the truth. I think it's, uh, you know, the FDA has to know what's going on. I, I think pharmaceutical companies for sure know what's going on. Um, but, you know, profit over people, you know, is, that's 16th point, you know, just, I think that's, that's what's happening. So. You know, having, having been at the FDA and worked in a number of pharmaceuticals companies before, it was never like these things were just clearly like presented and a group of people were just like, yeah, nah, like we're just going to overlook this. It's so much, it's, it's almost more like pathetic than that. Like there's just people aren't paying attention. You know, the, at the, at the drug, the drug regulators are so focused on pharmaceutical kind of activities, whether it's approving new drug applications or approving new protocols, they don't really pay attention to safety much. And in the drug companies, they, I don't know, it's like, I think of it as like a whole group of people like regulators, pharmaceutical companies, doctors, they're, they're, they're drinking their own Kool-Aid because the, the drug companies, they frequently anticipate that people are going to be nervous about problems, you know, take vaccines or vaccine injuries. And then they'll, they'll generate a number of papers that essentially say it's controversial or, you know, you know, these are being promulgated by people who, you know, have an agenda against us. And that becomes the mainstream kind of opinion on it. And they drink, you know, they drink that stuff up. They're just like, oh, this is in the journals. This must be real. Um, and, and then because you have that mindset and you're so used to seeing it, I think there's, they, they look at safety data, you know, less rigorously. They just go, oh, you know, this can't be, this can't be real because they've almost sort of bought into the, the BS that's come out of the companies because, because they control a lot of what's in the, the, the medical journals, um, and the, and the conferences, but, um, it's, it's hard to believe it's, yeah. I guess that, you know, that makes sense, right? Bureaucracy kind of uh, uh, making everything really kind of cumbersome and and making people unaware. But um, it's just hard to, it's hard to think that there's not someone, right? Or some people or some entity that doesn't know what what's happening Bes- besides well, that, us that are injured, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think there's some people in there and they have an inkling and they go, this doesn't sit right with me. But if that person's in like a pharmaceutical company, they go, well, you know, my 500,000 to a million dollar salary kind of almost depends on me being ignorant about this and being a team player and being easy to work with. And so it's really easy to almost want to believe what the company is telling you and the experts, because it's just, it's easier to live with that. It's less complicated for your family. You know, if you're someone in a, in a, if you're a drug regulator, you may have a feeling about a risk and just be like, yeah, this is like, there's something not right about this, but it's also really easy to get into the mindset of like, 
no one really like cares about safety issues because they don't really. It's not monitored in any rigorous way. So why would I go and create more work for myself when I'm making, you know, half of what I would of my half of what my colleagues are making in clinical practice? It's really poorly paid. And then also, it's like you still have all your your other activities to do. And so if you if you really want to be like a dog with a bone on this issue you're creating more work for yourself. This So this like little, I, I guess, personal incentive to really dig into these things because you get a lot of pushback from companies. You'll have to write a lot of reports to kind of defend your position. And I think um, in a way, it's just easy to go along with what the company is saying if you can get away with it because it means your job's simple and more right. straightforward. And that's why I say it's like, like people, the people will think like, Oh my God, people know. And there's like a group of people and they're just like, Oh, we're just going to hide it. But the reality is I think it's just much more kind of like peer pressure and kind of like this laziness and just like wanting to believe a story because it's like less work for you and mm. it'll make things like simpler, you know, for, for your life. And, and that's, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's like, we're like, oh my God, that's so crazy that that happens with doctors and regulators and pharmaceutical companies. But I tell people, think about your own life, think about your own careers, think about, because these, these things come up in everyone's life. You know, you might be with a group of friends and someone says something and it's just like crazy. And you're like, should I say something about this to stand up to them? Or do you say to yourself, you know what, this is not really my, my battle to pick. I'm going to let this one slide because I've got other things right. on my plate. It's just human nature. But, I was going to say that it's just like education, you know, yeah. like when I worked in education, there's a lot, there's a lot of that. So, yeah. 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 Um, and so, yeah, kind of depressing, but, but because when it happens with a drug regulator or a pharmaceutical company or a doctor, I mean, you, you end up poisoning millions of people um, and right. obviously causing massive harm. So there's something a little bit different about those people having uh, compromised ethics. Uh, so, but to segue, I want to ask you a little bit about how this experience made you think about Scientology again. Cause I know when we spoke on the phone, you know, we were chatting and you said, you know, it really made me like want to talk to like, you know, my parents a little bit more about, you know, Scientology and psychiatry. I don't know whether you went and did that, but I thought that was kind of interesting that you were kind of digging up things from the past about the church and psychiatry. And I was just wondering if you could share kind of yeah, that, that yeah. whole journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that was my homework. I don't know that yeah. I did the greatest job, but I, so I asked my mom and, you know, um, for background, like my parents, they, so Tampa is near Tampa Bay area is near Clearwater. And that's like the headquarters of Scientology. Mm -hmm. They have like a few, but that's kind of like, the main headquarters. Um, and point being they're they're highly concentrated in this area. Scientologists are. And so my parents actually met in the church of Scientology while they were both before they were married or had kids. And, um, they were both staff members and, um, and they were kind of like, not the OGs, but kind of like the OGs. They were Scientologists in, in the seventies. Um, and so my mom, although she's not active in the church, she still has friends that are. And um, so I did call her and, and I asked her, hey, where did this anti-psychiatry sentiment in the church come from? 
And she didn't really have like a straight answer for me. Um, you know, she, and she did end up asking some of those friends she still had and they didn't really have a straight answer either. Um, we kind of, as we talked, you know, I think we, we both concluded that these were maybe observations made by whoever in the church, maybe the founder, L. Ron Hubbard, um, and others. Um, cause you know, when we think of like psychiatry in like the fifties and sixties, we think of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which is a very popular movie among Scientologists. Um, cause it really kind of, I think, epitomizes how they view psychiatry um, still today. And, um, and that makes sense to me. I, I did, you know, I did some research on my own and I found, uh, and it's so funny, like being raised in the church, this wasn't information that we like discussed or like, you know, dissected or questioned. It just was. Because you guys aren't like, you don't go to a church, right? You do auditing or you do courses and um, yeah. So we do, so we do kind of, we don't know, we don't have like Sunday service, but we would have uh, what we called events and they were at the, the big church in Clearwater. Um, And usually, you know, John Travolta would be there, whoever would be there, we'd we'd all be excited and we'd dress up and, um, but you know, that was maybe like once a month, once every few months. Um, And then there was usually a smaller uh, not like the in the Tampa area anyway, um, not the big church in Clearwater, but a smaller uh, church in Tampa that folks would go to to do coursework. Um, and it, but but like the coursework, I don't know if you ever remember. Like, was any of it on psychiatry, or was it more on the personal development and spiritual development? So here's the kicker: is um, and why I think. Scientology is sometimes, um, or, or one of kind of the, the criticisms of Scientology, which I think is pretty valid, is um, you have to pay for all this coursework. So, mm-hmm. um, and you aren't allowed to tell others that haven't paid for it what was in that course, right? Um, okay. And, right, so this is kind of where you start questioning maybe how, you know, the what kind of, I mean, you know, for me as well, this is like the main thing that makes me suspicious about it because in all of the other religions, right. it's, it's like an open book. There's no like secret highest level, you know, right. there's no kind of secrets behind the courses. It's like, if just, you know, you could tell people what the information is and they would, and they might still choose to pay for right. it, you know, to, to right. get it in a course or an online lecture or something like that. But to make it you know, like a paywall and, and like some big secret that immediately is just like, um, right. I think transparency, you need transparency for like a religion. Right. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with you. Um, and yeah, I think it's a, it's a valid, um, you know, criticism and concern, right? Like why, uh, why, why are you having to one, why are you having to pay for this? And two, why can't you talk about it? Um, so there's Cause definitely then I wonder some, is it's like, cause if you reveal it, people might find out there's some really like kind of crazy stuff in there with like right. aliens and that'd be right. turned off. But if it was lit, like, if you just opened it up and you're just like, everyone just look at it, right. then they, then you would have like much more of a reach and people would say, hang on, I'm really like agreeing with this and I'm, I'm going right. to be more interested, you know? Right. Well, and yeah. I think, 
So, you know, I, I was reading, um, and I, I, I said all of that because I, I never did higher level coursework. As a kid, I went and did these lower level courses with other kids um, that were, you know, fairly inexpensive, you know, relative to these higher level courses. But, you know, some of these higher level courses, they, uh, they're very expensive and they do have supposedly things about like Xenu, you know, this alien kind of sure. god uh, uh, that, you know, s- sent all of us to planet Earth. And I absolutely think you're right. I think if you were to to start with that, most people would say you're nuts, right? And so... Because yeah. um, it starts to look, it's, it's like, it starts, yeah, it starts to look more like you know, yeah, this really was kind of maybe like the, the brainchild of a very brilliant science fiction writer, right. you know, when, when you start right. getting there at the end, it's like, right. you know, volcanoes and Xeno and things like that. Right. And, and I don't know, you may, maybe if it was just more transparent, I mean, that, that, that would have been fine for some people, but right. it does start to look far-fetched. Um, right. And it's kind of- yeah. It, do, yeah. it doesn't start. It is, it is far-fetched, you know? <laughs> yeah. it, it, it is far-fetched and, you know, it kind yeah. of, it does kind of remind me of like an abuser, right? That's like, um, just kind of the control, right? Of like, you can't talk about what's, you know, what are in these courses and, um, and also like, I'm going to kind of, you know, it's like, uh, rope you in first with these kind of these lower level courses that are more practical and they're, you know, coping skills for daily life. And then eventually, um, you know, as you, you move up to these higher level courses, it's kind of a gradual process. Right. And, um, but then you've paid like $50,000 to learn about, I mean, hundreds of thousands, millions for some, I'm sure. And, you know, some of it is like, like, I get it. You know, I, I I talked to another Scientologist, the uh, Scientologist the other day is actually very, you know, it was very friendly and I enjoyed speaking with him, Tad. And, um, we were talking about how you pay for the courses and I actually don't have a problem with paying for courses. I mean, if there's one-on-one work with auditing and it's more time intensive than a group ceremony, I think you can choose to pay for it if, 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 if they're doing it, but it's, it's the secrecy, God, the secrecy around, you know, what you're going to get in, in the courses is really, um, yeah, that that's the part of it that 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 still yeah. does doesn't work. Right. Yeah. 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 And so I don't know if, you know, in these higher level courses that I haven't taken, if there's like something written explicitly about psychiatry and why the church is so opposed to it, but it was really just growing up kind of woven into the the culture of of being a Scientologist um and uh and I, I know, so there, there's, um, there's a kind of like a task force for Scientology called, called, um, Citizens Commission for Human Rights. And I can remember as a kid volunteering with them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was co-founded with, a, a psychiatrist, uh, Thomas Saws, Saws, yeah. Yeah. And, um, that was about as far as like having any kind of legitimate, like, you know, point of like how did this come or why or how like that was really the only information I gathered was uh they 
created this task force and um, it was kind of backed by the psychiatrist that gave it a little credibility at the time. Um, I, w- I will say this though, and people will probably hate me for saying this because a lot of people just want you to wholesale dismiss Scientology as just being kind of this cuckoo thing. But I actually agree with a lot of the perspectives of Scientology yeah. on psychiatry. Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah. Um, having talked to, I spoke to one other Scientologist had, and man, did he have reasonable ideas about psychiatry. He was just saying there's something wrong with, you know, the, the desire to suppress symptoms like anxiety when they're, they could be warning signs of legitimate things happening in people's lives, you know, just kind of rattled off all these things that I completely agreed with. And then we started talking about other elements and I was just like, well, you know, what about using a psychiatric drug in maybe an elderly person with progressive dementia? And, you know, obviously it's ideal if this person's in your home you know, they're in your home and maybe you don't have the financial resources to hire someone to watch them and you really want to keep them at home with you, with you because you know you can care for them better. Would it be okay to use an antipsychotic medication if they're having brief episodes of agitation or psychosis? And I don't know why. I think I just had this very kind of all or nothing view of Scientology, but he essentially said, you know, for me, like I'm rational. I would just look at that. And I think, if that's what you needed to do and it was the greatest kind of good for the family, he was just like, I, I'd be okay with that. And he goes, I don't know if other Scientologists would agree with me, but that sat fine with him. And I was just like, it, you know, it was just, it was interesting to have such a rational discussion with, with someone, especially from a group where people kind of just wholesale dismiss them. And I did speak with some of my other colleagues who I work with in the withdrawal community and they were just like, yeah, it's interesting. You know, you, you can, you can have this group where you, you know, maybe they're doing some really out there things and, and then they might be wrong about a lot of stuff, but then on this one thing, you know, they, they, they can have a lot of good ideas. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm not I saying spoke- all of the ideas are great with psychiatry, but I think they actually get most of it and, and they get, they get most of the criticisms pretty well right. to their credit. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I would, I would agree. I think I kind of agree with, I think, um, now all of their views on psychiatry. It's just some of the other views that I, I tend to dis- mm-hmm. disagree with. I'm not on board with, uh, Zenu, um, and, yeah, sure. and some other, yeah. you know, aspects of, uh, corrupt leadership. But, um, well, I wanted to ask about that because I, I don't watch a lot of these, you know, I, I, I hear things just on the news and things like that. And I know there's been controversies, but I, I don't like, like what are some of the corruptions in there that, that, you know, from, I don't know, maybe hearing about it growing up from your family or looking into it closely. What, what's it like? Like, how do, how do you see corruption mainly playing out in the lives of kind of day to day Scientologists and the effects that it has on them? Yeah. You know, so there's, there's all these little offshoots of Scientology. Um, and so there's what's called the Sea Org. And that's kind of like an extreme, um, I don't know what would be a good comparison, kind of like going on a mission if you're LDS maybe. But um, it's this kind of extreme offshoot of Scientology. You sign a contract because they believe in reincarnation. It's for a billion years that you're going to commit yourself to, to this purpose. Um, and, and it's on a ship 
And, um, and so I've heard a lot of stories. I, I have family members that have been Sea Org members, multiple family members. Um, and I've heard stories of, you know, it's, and I know Leah Remini is kind of a, she's gained some popularity with speaking out against Scientology in recent years. She was, she was a Sea Org member uh, from some of her stories. So some of like, you know, these kind of egregious stories, um, they really are kind of concentrated, I think, in the Sea Org. And I think the Sea the Org is in closer proximity to a lot of these higher ranking leaders in the church. Um, and so like my mom told me a story of um, her brother, my uncle, uh, being in the Sea Org, and um, he got in trouble for dating a woman. Um, and, you know, he, they make you just do kind of demeaning work and they put, you know, like a red, uh, a red patch on your arm to let everyone know to kind of treat you like shit, I guess. <laughs> um, and yeah, yeah. And, um, but you know, I, I have never seen like violence take place in the day-to-day lives with, you know, with. Scientologists. Um, I've never, I've heard stories again, like with people close to me, but I do think some of those, uh, some of those stories are mostly concentrated in places like the Sea Org where, yeah, they're interacting with some of these leaders. And it kind of sounds, I mean, it sounds like a frat house and hazing, you know, when I hear like, <laughs> oh, you have to wear this red armband and then people are nasty to you until you've paid your right. dues. I don't know. Yeah. I was thinking in the beginning, I was like talking about some of just kind of growing up as a Scientologist and, um, but anyways, I, hopefully, hopefully I've been coherent for most of it. Um, no, it's been, it's been really, it's been really, really, um, fascinating and interesting and, um, you know, one part I'm curious about, I know you said you kind of whiplashed and became, I, I'm assuming, a Democrat or a liberal. Do you still identify on that political party or did you kind of whiplash back after you got injured and learned about, you know, vaccine problems and things like that? Yeah. I know it can kind of bounce you around. Yeah, that's complicated. So, you know, yeah. I guess I would say I'm I'm pretty, I, I would say maybe more like apolitical than I've ever been. But, you know, nope. before this, I was really... I even, I was leftist. I, I participated in like anti-fascist movements and I even kind of, um, you know, I disowned the democratic party and liberals. Like I, I was really on the far extreme of, of kind of like, like a, almost like, like, like Antifa. Is that kind of, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways there, kind there's these, this overlap with kind of like these, extreme right wingers, like libertarians, there's kind of this overlap. It's mm-hmm. like anti-establishment and, um, and so forth. <clears throat> and, um, and some of that, you know, I still identify with, I'm still, I, I still get on board with, um, you know, like, like who likes racists, you know, I mean, besides Nazis, maybe, I don't know, but, yeah. um, you know, like that kind of stuff. But, um, but as far as, you know, yeah, like getting on board with, you know, cause there is like a culture that comes with, I think the, you know, the political left and that's kind of like it, these o- over diagnosing over, you know, medicalizing, pathologizing everything. It seems like, 
you know, like autism and ADHD, everything is like everyone has something now. And I do think that falls more on the political left. And, and I don't, I, I really very, reject that. Yeah. They're very like trust the science, I think, without understanding right. that so much of the science is actually pharmaceutical right. marketing. Right. Like I'm, I'm all for trust the science, but it's, it's gotta be like real science, not just, um, spin. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, like they can't like patent and sell like photosynthesis. That's good science. That's awesome. Science is mm -hmm. awesome. Right. But they, yeah, they can't market it really. They, you know, mm -hmm. but they can with drugs. They, they can't you know, basically just kind of like these scientific ideas that are, I, I feel like pretty, it is solid silent science, but, um, but yeah, medications, you know, it's a different story. Yeah. So I wanted to, now, now, now I know where I was going with this. Where are you now in your, um, in your recovery from protracted withdrawal injury? I mean, are you, I mean, at about 16 months, most people still have pretty bad symptoms from the ones I've worked with. Where, where are you kind of, uh, symptom wise on, on, a, on a day to day? Yeah, I'm sure I, I'm for sure not as bad off as a lot of folks. Um, I still have really bad high anxiety. I have caught really relative to, uh, you know, who I was as a person before this, I have pretty bad, uh, cognitive issues. Um, pretty bad, um, brain fog, uh, DPDR, uh, general disconnect, um, anhedonia. Um, and those things, of course, like the, they, they come in windows and waves. And so, uh, there's moments where they're, they're better and moments where they're, uh, they're worse. Um, tinnitus uh and and i'm at the end now of tapering the benzo i've been on um and nicole lamberson has given me a great rework of the end of my taper um and and so it's kind of hard to tell with you know the vicissitude of withdrawal like with just one medication is uh it's hard to decipher what, you know, is it something I eat or is it, is this a wave or whatever? But with two now, it, it's kind of like what's benzo withdrawal and what's, yeah, what's uh pause with my antidepressant. So um, my, my sleep isn't great. Um, that was really what made me seek out Nicole is uh, I just, I needed to, to slow it down or do something different because um, my, the sleep and agathisia seemed to really go, hand in hand with me, um, for me. So, yeah. so I didn't want to go down that path again. Well, I'm glad you're working with Nicole cause you're in really good hands, um, yeah. with her. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to segue to, to kind of wrapping this up because I've, you know, we've covered so much. Um, did you have any other thoughts or any other topics that you wanted to discuss? Um, you know, not that I, yeah, I'm sure I'll think of them when we're done, but not that I can think of right now. Um, no. E email me if, if they come to mind, we could, uh, we could do this again, but, um, Morgan, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and share your story. I think it's just, there's so many interesting things in there and I, um, yeah, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittDuringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.